0: Welcome to the July 3rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Job 25 through 27 and Acts chapter 12, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at mattellis1997 at gmail.com. I may answer it on the next podcast. Acts chapter 12. In contrast to the love that the believers in Antioch had for the Jerusalem Christians that uh, we read about in the last chapter, in Acts chapter 11, here we read of the hatred that Herod Agrippa I and the Jews had for the Jerusalem Christians. Listen to Acts chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. James was one of the inner three apostles that learned from Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John, and as we went through the Gospels, we saw that there were a few occasions where Jesus only spent time with those three. Uh, he, James, was the first apostle to be killed under the rule of an unfriendly government. Apparently, uh, he was alleged, James was alleged, to be guilty of leading Israel away to serve another false god, uh, since th- he was talking about Jesus and exalting Jesus as God the Son. And so here at Agrippa I, a Jew, would have seen the merits of eradicating an infidel from, amongst, from among their midst. Well King Herod Agrippa uh, may have thought that killing James was the right thing to do, but was also it was a political risk. James was a high profile Christian figure in Jerusalem, and the number of Christians in that city was not known. So would there be a massive uprising after James' death? Well, Herod noticed that the response to James' murder was overwhelmingly positive. The Jews loved that he had killed one of the Christian church's main leaders. And if there were Christians, and there were Christians there in Jerusalem, they didn't really say anything about it. They didn't have an uprising about it. So Herod grew bolder. He arrested Peter and put him under the careful watch of 16 soldiers. Peter was to remain in prison until after the observance of the Passover when he would stand before Herod and be tried. It would, be, it, it would seem that the 16 soldiers were on a rotation, maybe a six-hour rotation. Four of them would have been on duty at one time with two chained to Peter and the other two watching at the entrance. Peter wasn't going anywhere. At least that was their plan. Listen to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So Herod exercised his power by locking Peter up and putting soldiers in place to watch over him. However, the church exercised its power by dropping to its knees and praying to the God of heaven for Peter. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. So the night before Peter's trial, he was sound asleep. His dear friend James had been executed, and he might also uh, be sentenced to death the next day. But he, Peter, was sound asleep with seemingly no cares in the world. Why? (laughs) Listen to something he wrote a few years later in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He said, "'Humble yourselves, therefore,' under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. I think that's why Peter was able to sleep the night before he thought that he would be sentenced, maybe to death, because he had cast all of his cares on the Lord, knowing that the lord cared about him that he had humbled himself under the mighty hand of god so he was able to sleep an angel of the lord appeared and woke people up peter up out of a deep sleep the angel had to hit peter on the side to awaken him peter was sleeping well Peter's chains fell off of his wrists, something that was obviously supernatural because they were locked in place on his wrists, but we're told that they fell off of his wrists. The angel told Peter to get dressed, put his sandals on, and follow him. As with anyone who has been awakened from a deep sleep, we know what it's like not to have all of our senses fully awake. On top of this, Peter was also experiencing incredibly unusual circumstances, so it's not hard to believe that Peter was wondering if he was experiencing a remarkably vivid vision or if the events were really occurring. Verse 10, after they passed the first and second guards that came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened them by itself, they went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. So Peter was now breathing the air of freedom. The prison was behind him, and the angel had left, so he needed a destination. He couldn't stay out in the street all night. Listen to verse 12. As soon as he realized this, that it was not a vision, that it was real... As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. But before going to the place where he would spend the rest of the night, he stopped at Mary's house. Mary was a reasonably popular name at that time, and this Mary was the mother of John Mark, a man who would join the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey before quitting and heading back, but we'll read about that later. We're told that there was a prayer gathering at Mary's house, maybe unknown to Peter. Maybe they were praying for Peter to have the courage to stand up for Jesus. Maybe they were praying for clarity of mind so that Peter could proclaim the gospel simply and powerfully. Maybe they were praying that God would have mercy on Peter and spare his life. But whatever they were praying for, God had something better in mind. God had supernaturally released Peter from prison. Friend, this is a good time to acknowledge that we often don't have a clue what God is up to when we're praying. We pray, offering up our requests, and plead with the Lord to answer our prayers, yet if we knew what God knew, we might be much less prone to demand that God answer our requests. Instead, we would offer up our requests, but genuinely pray that God's will would be done. I, for one, am glad that the Lord has overlooked many of my prayer requests and did not answer them. Listen to verses 13 and 14. He, Peter, knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice. Apparently, you know, she was on one side of the gate on the inside and said, Who is it? And he said, This is Peter. She recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. So in her excitement, Rhoda left Peter on the street. She ran inside, interrupted the prayer meeting, and said that Peter was outside. So how did those folks in that prayer meeting respond? Did they say, wow, God is so good? Or did they say, God certainly answered our prayers beyond what we could imagine or think? Or did they immediately break into a prayer service because God had answered their prayers? Just listen to what they told the servant, verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Well, they had apparently been praying for God to do something big on Peter's behalf, but when God did that big thing, they didn't believe it. Well, this is a time when we need to reflect on whether or not we are praying big prayers and whether or not we truly believe that God can and will answer those prayers if they are in accordance with His will. Do we really believe that God is big and can answer our prayers, or do we often pray while at the same time doubting that God would actually answer our prayers. There's one thing they said that demands our attention. They said, it's his angel. So what does that mean? It may point, and probably does point to, a Jewish superstition at that time that said that every believer had a guardian angel. While some contemporary Christians today still hold to this view, They are hard-pressed to prove it from Scripture. It's just not there. Angels watch over us, but nothing in Scripture says that God assigns one angel to each believer during their life on earth. So once again, we're reminded that when someone in a narrative in Scripture says something, we understand from the inerrancy of Scripture that that is what they said. It does not mean what they said is true. So they were saying, it's his angel. That doesn't mean that every single person has an angel. It does mean that that's what what they said. Uh, But I do believe that this notion of guardian angels, that every single believer has an angel that's assigned to them, that is not given in Scripture. It may be true. I doubt it. um, But uh, it's certainly not provable in Scripture. Well, let's get back to Peter. He continued to knock until someone came to the gate to let him in. And they were amazed. Some of the ladies may have squealed with excitement. The guys may have given each other high fives. But the more reflective among them may have started to ask questions. Like, why aren't you still in jail? Or, did Herod release you? Or, did you jump out the restroom window? (laughs) Or... Are they coming after you, or will we? Will they take all of us prisoners if they see you with us? Listen to verse 17. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said this, Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. So Peter quickly told them how the angel had freed him from prison. Then he told them to share the news with James, Jesus' half-brother, who was apparently now leading the Jerusalem church. Peter, up to this point, had been the leader of the church, uh, of the, you know all of the, the elders. He was the one who was kind of the spokesman. But uh, now James is assumed to be the one who's leading. And then, after saying that, Peter went to an undisclosed location to get some rest. At sunrise the next morning, there was a major commotion among the soldiers who were assigned with watching over Peter. The soldiers responsible for watching over him, and maybe other soldiers, were beside themselves and knew that some of them would be dead by sundown. They had no answers as to what happened to Peter. Herod interrogated them, and in his anger, he had them executed. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea Maritima. Now, this is a city that we're becoming familiar with. This is where Cornelius lives. At least this is where he is stationed. We assume he's still stationed there with his hundred men, and now Herod, his boss, kind of, sort of, is uh, the one who is now going to be in that same city. In verse 20, we're told that Herod had become very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We don't know why he was angry. We just realize that the people of Tyre and Sidon knew that they depended upon Herod for some of their food, so they did their best to appease him, to get him happy again because he's angry at them and they may suffer the consequences. It's speculated that the folks of Tyre and Sidon may have been those in the crowd that did their best to inflate Herod's ego to gain his favor. Listen to the account of what happened in Scripture in verses 21 through 23. "'On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, "'It's the voice of a god and not of a man!' At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. One of the things we had better beware of is when people flatter us. So when someone goes overboard and says some really positive things about you, your first response should be to prayerfully attempt to figure out their motive because most flattery, comes from people who want something. And you will experience something negative eventually if you swallow that flattery pill. Listen to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5. A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So, getting back to the story, the Lord did bring judgment upon Herod. We read that in the story, so that he was eaten by worms and died. And this event happened, we know from records, historical records at that time, it happened in AD 44. And it's recounted in the writings of a first century Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus was not a Christian. He wrote about Jewish history in the first century, but he did write about some things uh, that are in scripture. And in fact, He wrote about this event. He wrote about the event where Herod showed up to Caesarea Maritima. Herod Agrippa stood up. They proclaimed it's the voice of God and not of of a God and not of man. And uh, it was as he accepted that flattery that God struck him. So what I want to do is I want to read to you out of... Josephus's book called The Antiquities of the Jews. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to look it up, maybe if you wanted to look it up online, there's different translations, you know, so different people translate it a little bit differently. Um, but uh, but it's, it's in The Antiquities of the Jews. It's Book 19, Section 8, Verse 2, if you want to read it online. But I'm going to share with you Josephus' account of what we just read. Okay, so let me read this to you. It says, Now, when Agrippa, and that's Herod, Herod Agrippa I, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar, upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflections of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as a superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them, nor reject their impious flattery. But as he was presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also rose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life, while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept of what providence allots as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner." When he said this, his pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. But the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with his wives and children after the law of their country and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifty-fourth year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign." And so there's more that's said about that in Josephus' writings, but once again, this is the recounting of a Jewish historian uh, that lived in the first century that wrote about this event. Uh, it's kind of fascinating to read some of his writings, realizing his writings are not inspired scripture, but they are the faithful workings of a of a of a competent historian and how some of the things that are spoken of in scripture are also recounted in his writings. So, you know, if you ever wanted to dig in a little bit more, uh, look up the writings of Josephus, just make sure you get a good translation because uh, some translators are easier to read than others. All right. Well, the important thing, getting back to our text as we finish up, the important thing is that while powerful men rose and fell, like Herod Agrippa, he rose to power, he killed James, he put Peter in prison. While powerful men rose and fell, the church of the living God marched on. Listen to verse 24. But the word of God spread and multiplied. Herod died. The gospel continues. Death itself, or even the threat of death and persecution, couldn't stop the church of Jesus from growing. Honestly, when we look at the church's history over the last 2,000 years, it seems that it has often grown strong during times of persecution. But when times get, get easy, it often went to sleep. It often goes to sleep. So while praying for God to wake his church up might mean that bad things will come our way. It is so much better than sleeping while the world is going to hell. The chapter ends with the three men who would eventually go on an ambitious missionary journey, spreading the gospel all along the way. They're not going on the journey yet, but these are three of the men that would go on that journey. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. After they had completed their relief mission, Remember Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas were in Antioch and the Antioch Gentile Christians took up a love offering to give to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that were going through persecution and probably were out of jobs and everything else, that they had sent them money on a relief mission. So after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was also called Mark. So John, Mark. Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing most of us, or maybe all of us who listen to this podcast, to live in a country where we can worship you freely. We realize that Christians have experienced persecution throughout the last 2,000 years and that so many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing persecution even right now give strength and courage to those who need it Lord graciously enable them to stand up for you even if it would mean that doing so would cost them dearly and we also pray that the church around the world is strong and will help those who are persecuted and stand up for them and help us Lord who live in free countries to not take our freedom for granted Help us live boldly for you and share the gospel with those who need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at matsmusings.net. I will provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.